the R word, recession or rebound. As markets grappled with the ongoing war in Ukraine and increasingly hawkish global central banks, the second quarter of the year proved no less volatile and nerve-wracking for investors as the first. Two of the most universally watched global equity indices, the MSCI All-Country World Index and the S&P 500, briefly fell into bear market territory, posting losses of 22.5% and 23% in the middle of June before staging mini-rallies in the second half of the month. As our regular readers and listeners know, one of our fundamental, though certainly fallible, principle investing is that bear markets and recessions tend to overlap. It is exceedingly rare to get one without the other, as this chart attests to. Since the 1960s, we have only had one instance of a U.S. bear market outside of a U.S. recession, the 1987 October crash. Since we technically entered a bear market in mid-June, this chart tells us that the U.S. should already be in a recession if one goes by the historical average lag time between the markets and the economy of approximately six months, or on the cusp of one. Not surprisingly, market strategists and media pundits who but six months ago were predicting exceedingly high above-trend growth levels are now tripping over themselves, revising economic forecasts and index targets sharply lower. Yes, the war in Ukraine caught most observers, us included, by surprise, and the effects from the conflict are certainly exacerbating these issues. But we should also remember that, again, just six months ago, markets were forecasting that the Fed would not, would not raise rates until late 2024. At that time, and without the war imminent, we found that view too out of touch with the global inflationary environment. In our view, the market was too sanguine on the outlook then, but it has become too pessimistic about it now. The pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction. In our experience, markets rarely do what everyone expects them to do. When market consensus becomes too extreme in any direction, the projected moves rarely materialize. Surely, growth is slowing, but it is not contracting and surely not collapsing. Another curious development is the dichotomy between sentiment and activity. Almost all the sentiment and survey-based measures are falling rapidly, but the activity indicators and real-time data are holding up fairly well or slowing modestly. In other words, there is a massive divergence between how people feel and what they are doing. In fact, it is our view that it was precisely these survey-based measures of longer-term inflation expectations and not the latest CPI prints that scared the Fed into becoming more hawkish at its latest meeting. Investors worried, perhaps rightfully so based off the Fed's own statements, that the only way the central bank would be able to reduce inflation is through the deflationary impulse of a recession. The Fed might have been worried that people's perceptions of longer-term inflation expectations might become self-fulfilling and wish to cut them off as quickly as possible. In economics, an adaptive expectation is a process by which agents form their expectations of the future based on past experience. And recency bias is a cognitive bias that favors recent events over historic ones. Both are prevalent and powerful forces that the Fed must account for when formulating policy. Over the course of this quarterly, we will address our views on the economy and markets and attempt to give a roadmap for the third quarter of the year. Is a recession or rebound more likely? 
Perhaps there is a third option, neither. We will address these scenarios and how investors should position themselves over this quarter and into the end of the year. As always, we will also consider longer dated structural forces at work in the world. We will revisit our commodity supercycle thesis, which has served us well since, since last year, but lately has encountered some weakness. Is the cycle over or is it simply a buying opportunity? Finally, we will end with some important trends in global demographics that may have momentous investment implications over the next few decades. Importantly, we do not anticipate a recession in the United States over the next six months, given where our forecasted U.S. recession probabilities currently stand. As long-term investors, we construct our asset allocation firmly rooted on macroeconomic and market fundamentals. For that, we rely heavily on our proprietary Insignio Forefront recessionary indicator that gives us the probability of a U.S. recession over the next two quarters. As this graph demonstrates, it is telling us that the probability of one is still low, hovering below 10%. U.S. growth is definitely slowing, purposefully due to Fed tightening. And it, and it is showing some signs of late-stage dynamics of the economic cycle, such as an inventory buildup. If this trend continues, this means that recessionary risks could become significant around mid to late 2023. For now, though, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic and that we are simply in the midst of a mid-cycle slowdown. Household debt is much lower now than it has been in recent decades. Real personal consumption has been quite robust, largely due to falling savings, and excess savings still stand above $2.5 trillion, and the labor market remains firm. Though there have been some signs of weakening as of late, the U.S. consumer remains buoyant thanks to incredibly robust private balance sheets that are offsetting the squeeze in real income caused by higher inflation. On the corporate side, CapEx should be buttressed by elevated levels of cash and is still generous but rapidly closing spread between the real return on invested capital and the real weighted average cost of capital. However, there are also plenty of reasons to be concerned. The U.S. housing market looks particularly vulnerable right now, and activity is falling rapidly as housing costs soar, making the average monthly cost of the median U.S. home 50% more expensive than it was just one year ago. We expect flat price action in the U.S. housing sector after several years of strong gains, as well as outright price declines in more vulnerable real estate sectors like Canada, Australia, Japan, and New Zealand. It is worth noting that our recessionary indicator incorporates over 50 input series that capture all facets of the U.S. economy. The, the statistical confidence of our model two quarters out based on past data, is 81%. This means that it has successfully captured upcoming U.S. recessions roughly 80% of the time going back to 1971. It is not perfect, but the correlation is high enough that it would not make sense for us to claim that the next recession, whenever it arrives, will be in the 19% di distribution not captured by the indicator. Though the indicator is still far away from the 40% threshold that would force us to turn bearish from our current positioning of neutral, many inputs, particularly sentiment-based and market variables, are flashing red. 
One of the most astonishing aspects of the current market environment is the wide gulf between sentiment and activity. Like I mentioned before, the latter is holding up quite well, while the former is near historic nadirs. The power of the indicator, though, lies in aggregating the 50 input variables, significantly improving the degree of statistical confidence based on past data instead of relying on individual signals which have much lower predictive capabilities. The indicator allows us to block the noise and to generate a meaningful signal that is actionable. In this environment, the Fed is deliberately dampening demand in order to reduce price pressures. Frustratingly, the Fed's problem is that this is both a demand and a supply-driven inflation shock. So the chance of a Fed policy mistake is remarkably high. There is clearly a risk that it goes too far and tips the economy into a recession, unnecessarily as we do expect inflation to come down on its own rather quickly. Nevertheless, the chance of the Fed over-tightening financial conditions is now high. So while our proprietary model's reading tells us that a recession is not imminent, we have subjectively raised the odds of one over a 12 to 18 month horizon to around 40% given this heightened risk of an error in central bank policy. To be clear, our base case remains no recession in the United States over the remainder of the year. We should observe slowing but not contracting growth, a trend reflected in our updated global economic growth forecasts. Europe concerns us as recessionary risk is elevated in Germany and Italy, two nations that depend heavily on Russian natural gas imports to power their economies. Russia has already begun to curb shipments to the continent as part of the broader economic war it is fighting against NATO and the West. For example, Gazprom, Russia's state-owned gas company, cut its exports to Germany through its Nord Stream pipeline by 60% in June. If gas inventory levels fall far enough, the country will be forced to enter a state of emergency whereby supplies to industrial consumers would not be protected, thus causing a severe recession in Germany. China, on the other hand, is on its own economic and market cycle. The economy is accelerating, not decelerating as elsewhere, and monetary and fiscal policy is loosening. The Chinese economic rebound in the second half of the year is one of the reasons that we remain so sanguine on global GDP growth over the second half of the year. As we mentioned in last quarter's commentary, we still believe that Chinese equities will be the best performing major market force in the world this year. We stick with that view, and indeed China's recent strong outperformance versus global equities reinforces our thesis. On the inflation front, we see the global annualized rate falling by more than half by the end of the year much faster than current market expectations, partly because global financial conditions have already tightened significantly. In fact, outside of the two seismic shocks of the 2008 global financial crisis and the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, global financial conditions have not tightened this much since the 2011 European debt crisis, where the survivability of the Euro and the EU itself were in serious doubt. We also assume that the Ukrainian war will ultimately result in a ceasefire sooner rather than later as two realities converge. Russia consolidates territorial gains in the Donbass region in the face of mounting casualties and a disappointing war effort. And Ukraine realizes that it cannot win back lost territory without escalated outside help, 
which it will not receive. Thus, both sides will leave the conflict not getting everything that they want, but with enough to save face domestically. Lastly, the market already expects the Fed funds rate to reach 3.5% by the end of the year. Putting it all together, it is our view that the Fed will not tighten more quickly than what is already priced into forward rates and the yield curve. Market-based inflation expectations, such as the U.S. 5-year 5-year break-even rates, have come down significantly, and they should give the Fed the breathing room it is looking for. If our base case holds, then financial assets could rally by the end of the year, though we expect that to materialize in the final quarter rather than the current one. If so, then markets may not do much in the third quarter other than trade within the range they have done so since early June. The rebound will likely have to wait until the fourth quarter. So, the answer to the question we posed at the beginning, recession or rebound, is more likely neither, at least over the next three months. Investors should refrain from adding to equity positions until more clarity emerges about the trajectory for inflation and growth. However, with markets down so sharply since the start of the year, and investor sentiment and positioning at multi-decade lows, the time to de-risk portfolios has passed, even if a U.S. recession is imminent. If we are wrong in our assessment that inflationary pressures will ease enough during the second half of the year as pandemic dislocations subside and service consumption normalizes, then a Fed-induced recession is more likely than not to materialize in the United States. At that point, the Fed may decide that the only way to bring inflation back under control is to cause a contraction in U.S. economic growth. If a recession does occur, it should be a fairly mild one, as A, there are no large financial imbalances out there, and B, it will be caused by purposeful Fed tightening. In other words, it is not likely to look like the sharp contractions caused by exogenous shocks like the pandemic and financial crisis, our two most recessionary experiences. If that is the case, then it does not make sense to reduce volatility in your portfolios after the market has fallen so much already. Since World War II, we observed 12 U.S. recessions coinciding with bear markets. During such markets, the S&P 500 has contracted peak to trough by a median of 24% and an average of 30%. On June 17th, the S&P 500 was down 23.39%. That means that investors have absorbed 97% of the median losses they can expect and 78% of the average losses. Furthermore, a mild recession by definition will likely be below the median and average. So the time to reduce volatility, i.e. to raise cash, has passed. Now, we would advise conservative investors to stay the course throughout the third quarter or until we get further clarity on the inflation growth mix. For aggressive clients, i.e. those with higher volatility tolerance, now would be the time to start buying attractive markets or assets. As a firm, we are maintaining our neutral risk allocations for now, as this is as bearishly positioned as we can be given where our recessionary indicator is. However, we will look to increase risk exposure once there is clear evidence from the Fed's perspective that inflation has peaked and or there is a ceasefire announced in Ukraine. Our year-end target ranges for the S&P 500 and the U.S. 10-year yield currently are 4,200 to 4,400, 
and three to three and a half percent respectively. On a style basis, growth is still expensive versus value despite the underperformance year to date. Historically, growth trades at an average forward PE premium of 54% versus value. The growth sell-off has reduced the premium from 130% down to 94%, so it is still too expensive in relative valuation terms and may have further room to underperform. We see two significant left and right tail risks to our investment stance. On the downside, a major geopolitical energy shock could drive oil prices well beyond $130 per barrel, exacerbating headline inflation data. Retail gasoline prices are highly correlated to consumer-based inflation expectation surveys. It was the breakout in these survey-based measures that alarmed the Fed and triggered the 75 basis point hike last month. The Fed is worried that if consumers believe this trend will continue, remember, adaptive expectations, then they could become further entrenched and require a disinflationary recession to dislodge. So a negative oil shock now represents a major downside risk. On the other hand, there is also a right tail scenario where CPI and PCE inflation fall much faster than the Fed and markets currently expect. This could trigger a Fed dovish pivot that could lead to renewed multiple expansion if rates fall significantly. We view this as unlikely before the fourth quarter, since the Fed has already stated that it needs to see several, i.e. at least three months of falling prints. However, this upside risk increases into year-end, and it is why our S&P 500 target range is 14% to 20% higher from the June 16th low. In our view, the recent weakness in the commodity complex has been driven by elevated recession and growth fears. It has been focused on the demand side as market participants expect central banks to curb enough demand for oil, metals, and other commodities by enough that prices will fall. But our core thesis underpinning our long-term bullish supercycle view on the commodity complex was never predicated on demand. It rested on the supply side. It was due to the decade-long underinvestment in production capacity by commodity-producing companies. Basically, there is a chronic lack of supply after a decade pre-2020 of falling prices. As we see in this chart, only with China reopening after its lockdown in the midst of a global slowdown, global oil inventories are already back in physical deficit and are being depleted. There is simply not enough global commodity productive capacity at current levels to meet the world's demands. Only higher prices, perhaps much higher prices, will shift the supply curves upward and eventually cause prices to fall into equilibrium. But we are years away from this occurring, and the structural uptrend in commodity prices is only just beginning. We view the recent weakness as working off the potential excesses caused by the war rather than the end of the cycle. Of course, if a recession does materialize, prices will fall temporarily. When the economy is in a recession for long enough, demand for commodities will decrease and prices will eventually fall. Eventually, however, a recession will only worsen the underlying supply issues plaguing the complex. So it just means that the super cycle will lengthen. In the end, we continue to view commodities and commodity-related assets both as a return generating component within portfolios and as an effective 
and valuable hedge for inflation and geopolitical risks. We particularly still like the industrial metals, supply and demand story here with the renewables, and project and project that Brent oil should trade between $115 and $120 per barrel by the end of the year. Separately, gold functions well as a hedge against inflation and geopolitical risk, but it is not as compelling of a directional play right now as the rest of the commodity complex. In other words, it does not have the same structural supply side concerns as copper or oil, for example. Gold prices are approximately flat for the year, so it has done quite well amidst all the global market turbulence. If an investor believes that inflation is non-transitory, is non that inflation data will not come down this year, and or that we are heading into a stagflationary environment, then it should certainly be overweight the precious metal in their portfolios as a core holding. Our view is that gold is currently trading near to fair value, so we are maintaining our neutral positions as an inflationary geopolitical risk hedge. If our base case is right and inflation will peak shortly, then gold should underperform other commodity prices. In the long run, however, we still like gold quite a bit as we think that central banks will want to hold more gold than they currently do in their reserves as the demand for US dollars decreases and that an increasing amount of trade, especially between China and Russia and the West, will be settled in gold rather than dollars, euros, or sterling. What if birth rates skyrocket instead of collapse? It is a well-known fact that the pandemic caused birth globally to collapse and that they remain below levels necessary to stabilize population growth. We also know that aging populations place a major strain on pension and healthcare systems as fewer workers have to support more consumers and retirees. This graph demonstrates that after rising steadily since the 1980s, the global support ratio, or the ratio of workers to consumers, peaked a few years ago and is projected to collapse to levels last seen during the 1970s. The news is filled with alarmist predictions of the grain of European, North American, and North Asian populations, coupled with their dire repercussions. After many years of failed government policy to boost fertility rates, for example, China lifting its one-child policy, there is a sense among policymakers that there is not much that they can do to encourage people to have more children. Studies show us that as people retire, they save less and spend more. As the pool of global savings decreases, it places upward pressure on equilibrium real interest rates and bond yields. Faced with these prospects, governments are likely to further increase spending to encourage more childbearing. Permanent and or larger fiscal budget deficits will similarly deplete national savings and push rates higher. These demographic considerations have underpinned one of our most fundamental investment calls, the end of the 40-year bond bull market. A major corollary of that thesis is that interest rates have begun a structural uptrend with successively higher highs and higher lows, although they will temporarily fall during recessionary periods. But what if birth rates will eventually increase on their own despite government policy? What if global fertility rates, instead of further declining, may be bottoming and poised to rise sharply? A 2019 study in the Journal of Evolution and Human Behavior by Jason Collins and Lionel Page suggests that our population modeling is incorrect 
because they use assumptions of constant long-term fertility rates. In their place, the authors introduce a dynamic model incorporating inheritable fertility based on evolutionary biology. Rather than stabilizing around a long-term level for developed nations, fertility rates tend to increase as children from larger families represent a larger share of the population and partly share their parents' traits of having more offspring. In other words, both cultural and genetic evolution will select for families that wish to have more children. To further clarify, the desire to have more children is as inheritable as height or IQ. As cultural forces have suppressed fertility over the last few hundred years, really since the Industrial Revolution, an ever-growing proportion of people with a higher propensity to have more children will have children. When the environment changes so quickly, since the early 1800s, that existing reproductive strategies become suboptimal, natural selection responds quickly. Their results suggest that the global population will grow much faster than currently anticipated. In their model, without the inheritability effect, the global fertility rate declines to 1.82 by the end of this century, which is below the human replacement threshold. But once heritability effects are factored in, that rate increases to 2.21, well above the threshold. If true, this would have massive global policy implications from climate change to migration patterns to global conflict and even extraplanetary human settlement. And as this chart demonstrates, the effects are most pronounced in the two areas you would least expect, Europe and North America. Their model projects the European and North American fertility rates to rise to 2.46 and 2.67 respectively, above the global averages and against all conventional wisdom given current population modeling and projections. At a recent event, Elon Musk said, if people don't have more children, civilization is going to crumble. He is right. Progress, technology, and network effects work better with higher end variables. The more people, the better. But we might not have to do anything about it from a policy perspective, as natural selection pressures might already be breeding out those of us less inclined to have children. As Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park reminded us, life finds a way. Now, I pass it along to my colleague, Melissa Ochoa Cardenas, who will be addressing impact investing in Latin America after giving us an executive summary of the region. Latin America is facing a challenging outlook for the second half of 2022. Let us zoom in on the region by performing a macroeconomic overview and a general market revision. Latin America has not been immune from the shocks that have affected the world throughout the first half of 2022. Mounting inflation pressures, exacerbated in most countries by higher than usual food and gas prices, together with the Russia-Ukraine conflict that added yet another layer of complexity to global trade, have forced the hand of central banks in terms of implementing a tighter monetary policy across the region. Furthermore, the change in the Fed's monetary policy approach and other central banks in developed markets have, may have influence in the duration of LATAM's tightening cycle. Against this backdrop, growth has proven to be resilient in most LATAM countries, favored mainly by strong consumer demand that in some cases has been aided by pandemic government support. 
However, this trend is not expected to carry over into 2023, since the pass-through of monetary policy will start denting consumption, which in turn will affect growth going forward. Moreover, the previously mentioned government stimulus present throughout the COVID-19 pandemic has translated into a challenging fiscal outlook, with some governments observing both an increase in their debt-to-GDP ratios and a widening of their fiscal deficits. The latter would imply a cut in fiscal spending, which should bode ill for growth. Moreover, the political ingredient remains in the Latin American mix, with most of the region now being led by left-leaning presidents and the Brazilian presidential elections getting closer by the hour. Currently, the region faces two central conundrums. First, the fate of the new Chilean constitution, where rejection has been dominating the vote intention for the last two months. And secondly, the Colombian president Gustavo Petro's newly appointed government that still has not announced all of its members, thus maintaining a sense of uncertainty and volatility in the Colombian market. According to analysts, the result of the September 4 referendum could be tied, against the belief that the new Chilean constitution could imply lower investment and fewer savings in the long run. Regarding Colombia, the market would consider any moderation of Petro's proposals positive, given that the means for financing some of his ambitious ideas remain uncertain. In sum, even if the initial picture for the region seems daunting, LATAM is expected to have sustained growth amid the previously mentioned challenging variables. This, in turn, may lead to a brighter picture in 2023, where some countries could begin loosening their monetary policy amid receding inflation. Now, let us discuss impact investing in Latin America. Much has been spoken about impact investing in the last few years, making it another buzzword in the investing industry. As was stated by Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, delivering a financial return while doing good struck most philanthropists and investors as far-fetched. However, this is not a new type of investing, nor is it the desire of humankind to achieve something beyond just financial returns with its capital investments. Today, we will dive deeper into impact investing, how the perspectives are looking for LATAM specifically, and what we as investors can do to benefit from it. Let's start with the definition. Impact investments, as defined by the Global Impact Investing Network, GIN, are made with the intention to generate positive, measurable, social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Furthermore, even if all investments make an impact on society, be it good or bad, impact investments are expected to focus solely on pursuing those that lead to measured positive social impact. In addition, as stated by the Jin, impact investing challenges the long-held views that social and environmental issues should be addressed only by philanthropic donations and that market investments should focus exclusively on achieving financial returns. This approach still seems far off of the usual modus operandi of the financial sector. However, the latest GIN annual impact investor survey from 2020 proves this to be false. Amongst the respondents of the survey, 51% were equivalent to asset managers of for-profit institutions, whereas only 14% were fund managers of not-for-profit organizations, ranking second in the list. In addition, it should be highlighted that 52% of the respondents began making impact investments within the last decade. Moreover, 
With respect to the different nationalities from the impact investors involved in this survey, North America and Europe are the industry leaders, accounting for 45% and 26% of the respondents, respectively. Zooming in into the types of investments that comprise the impact investing industry, private debt stands out as the asset class that gets the highest percentage of both investments and capital invested, followed by publicly traded debt and private equity, as can be seen in the following graph. Nonetheless, the situation I just portrayed is not focused on any region. So let us drill down on Latin America. The first thing that I would like to highlight is that the growth and impact investing has had in the region. According to the latest GIIN annual impact investor survey, impact investing allocation in Latin America and the Caribbean in 2019 stood at $13.17 billion, equivalent to a CAGR of 21% for the period between 2015 and 2019. Furthermore, the latest impact investing survey states that 60% of its respondents are based in Latin America, with the greatest representation coming from Brazil and Mexico. The survey also stresses that the impact investing market in the region is becoming more attractive, since the capital deployed by local investors has increased in the five years before 2019, with the initial investments made by locals more than doubling that of investors based outside of LATAM. In this regard, it is worth pointing out that the perspective, perspective gleaned from Acumen Latam Impact Ventures, ALIVE. This organization stated in the survey that 30% of its fundraising stemmed from local institutions. The latter is a trend they had not seen in other regions where Acumen, a nonprofit that is focused on changing how the world tackles poverty, had participated in different fundraisings. Moreover, Impact investing has also been present in Latin America through venture capital investing, with big names like SoftBank launching LATAM exclusive funds in 2019 and 2020 that helped in turn impact investing in the region into a bigger, faster, and more sophisticated process. Another example of impact investment in LATAM is New Ventures, a Mexican company that is, in its own words, disrupting business as usual. It is trying to incorporate intentionality across all of its projects by, among others, launching funds from its venture investing arm, where the first one will be a women-focused health tech fund. In a recent interview, New Ventures founder Rodrigo Villar highlighted that LATAM recently had its first social unicorn, the Chilean company Betterfly. Betterfly is a B Corp whose aim is to provide insurance and wellness to companies and their employees. Here, it is relevant to address what being a B Corp means. B Corporations are companies that voluntarily meet the highest standards for social and environmental performance. They go through a rigorous certification process, completing a comprehensive assessment of their company's impact on all of their stakeholders and having their assessment verified by BLEF, the nonprofit that is behind the B Corp certification. The next point that I would like to address is how investors can access this space that is starting to evolve from being a niche to a more developed way of obtaining both social and financial returns. Firstly, the GIN stated in, in its latest listed equities report from 2020 that there are different strategies to address impact. Those can range from funds with a broad vision that seeks to invest in companies that broadly promote an equitable and sustainable world 
to funds with a more specific approach and target a defined impact problem or a sustainable development goal or SDG. When allocating resources into their different portfolios and according to the GEN report I just mentioned, there are three separate profiles of investments. The first one are diversified funds with a broad thematic focus, which is about 100 more stocks across the entire set of SDGs. Secondly, a diversified fund with narrow thematic focus, which is more than 100 stocks that are clustered around a specific set of SDGs. Lastly, it would be through concentrated high conviction funds, which is about 50 stocks. These different profiles also depend on individual investors' considerations, such as big multinationals that could impact other sectors or even have both positive and negative impacts depending on the part of the business that is being considered. Zooming in into some fund investments that are a common alternative for investors to access this space, there are fund managers, such as Amundi, that offer different sleeves so that investors can choose the type of impact investment they would like to perform. Others, like Acumen, created a specific investment arm, which is Acumen Capital Partners, to structure and manage funds that will fill a critical gap that currently exists for social enterprises. One of these funds that I previously mentioned, whose focus is solely on LATAM, is Alive. Both managers and investors will need to have tools to quantify impact to determine the social return that they were able to achieve. Thus, it is relevant to highlight the existence of the IRIS Plus system developed by the GIN, which is defined as the generally accepted system for measuring, managing, and optimizing impact. One of its key features is that it includes a thematic taxonomy that offers generally accepted definition of impact categories and impact themes. The IRIS Plus also identifies common goals and core metric sets by theme, thus providing a common language for describing, assessing, and comparing impact performance. In sum, impact investing is helping to close the gap that existed previously between societal benefits and financial returns in a way that other investment alternatives had not been able to attain. If the GEN survey proves to be correct and the growth of this market cont continues with the trend it has been displaying throughout the last five years, the term impact investing, first coined in 2007, could transition from being a buzzword to something crucial within the financial services industry. Here, I conclude the presentation and leave the floor open for questions. This presentation is for general information only and does not contain and is not to be taken as containing any securities advice, recommendation, offer or invitation to subscribe for or purchase or redemption of any securities regarding Insignio. Information provided herein is not an offer to buy or sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment.